0: Alright, good morning. So, reading from John 3, I'll give you a minute or two to find that in your Bibles if you want to, or it'll be up on the screen behind me. John 3. We've got John 2 up there, but I'm going to be reading John 3, starting at verse 1. <laughs> if we've got the wrong ones on the, on the slides, then maybe I'll just, I'll just read it. We can switch that off. Just while you're finding it, just a disclaimer. If you want to know how to treat a snake back properly, please do visit John Ambulance. <laughs> There's much more to it. <laughs> All right, let's read from John 3. If we've still got John 2 up there, just ignore what's on the screen for the moment. So John 3, beginning at verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him.
1: Well thank you Alexa. Well that is how the most famous Bible verse of all time John chapter 3 verse 16 is introduced. Most of us will have heard of this verse before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3:16. Now, even though most of us know it and love it, my guess is that none of us, when we hear it, are interpreting it thinking, oh, well, the key to understanding is that Jesus is the snake. And yet, that is precisely the key that Jesus gives to crack open this verse which means if we're not thinking that, there is more for us to grasp. And we need to pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, open our eyes and give us a hunger to understand this profound truth so beautifully captured in this verse. Please speak to us afresh and give us humility to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. So our aim is to think carefully on John chapter 3, verse 16, and to do it freshly. But before we get there, Jesus clears the ground. When a builder comes to a place and builds a new building on a site, they have to first clear the ground. They have to knock over what was previously there. They have to remove the rubble. They have to dig out the old foundations and then lay new ones. That is what Jesus does for us in his conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus carries some deeply held beliefs which are similar to ones we hold and Jesus brings a whopping big sledgehammer to them. Why does he do this? He does it because some of our beliefs are wrong and they blind us. And because unless he clears them away, he can't build the good building that he wants to in verse 16. Unless we've got the right foundations, we just won't get it or even if we think we'll understand, there'll be parts that we don't, and then we'll mistake the good news of John 3:16 for bad news. For example, many people come to John chapter 3, verse 16 and think, you know, this is so wonderful. Jesus is describing God as a God of love. And if that's the case, then God could not condemn anyone, meaning everyone automatically has eternal life. But that is not right, because Jesus does not say that. What he says is, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then that immediately raises the question, well, what about those who don't believe? What happens to them? And because we know people like that and we don't want anyone to perish, we assume to ourselves that people on balance are spiritually okay, or at least neutral, and then we tell ourselves that God should accept them and if this verse is saying that he won't, then you see what's happened. Instead of this verse being good news, we interpret it as bad news. What has just happened? The answer is we've elevated some core beliefs which are not true and which blind us to the better news. And so Jesus says first, before we come to the better news, we need to take a sledgehammer to some of our core hard truths, held truths. Uh, The first one being, entering God's kingdom, we think is easy, but Jesus says no, entering God's kingdom is harder than we think. The test case for this is Nicodemus, who we think should be acceptable to God. He's religious, but without being a professional. He's not a priest, he's not paid to do it. He's got standing, he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel, and yet he's not so full of himself as not to be open to God. He seeks out Jesus, he's the one Pharisee who does so. He goes to him at night. And it's obvious to Nicodemus that God is with Jesus. And you put all that together and you think, if anyone's going to heaven, this has got to be the guy. But just as Nicodemus finishes his polite introduction to Jesus, Jesus cuts through all of that and he brings down his sledgehammer and he just says, very truly I tell you, which is like me saying, you know, I'm gonna speak to you a core truth which you need to understand. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus protests, but Jesus hits him with another sledgehammer. Verse five, he says, very truly I tell you. It's it's not just that no one can see the kingdom of God. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the spirit. Two sledgehammer blows. He's knocked out the foundations from under Nicodemus. What's Jesus saying? He's saying seeing God's kingdom, entering God's kingdom is neither automatic nor natural, it's not automatic, we like to think it's automatic, you remember Shane Warne's memorial at the MCG, how all Australia tuned in, Australia's golden boy, and how often people spoke of him as being in heaven, Now, you take that statistic, Shane's service, you multiply it by 3,000, which is the number of Australians who die each week, you get the number of times that view is trotted out in memorial services around Australia each week. Because who of us has ever been to a memorial service where anyone has said anything different? Oh, they've just obliterated, oh, they're in hell. I mean, you just don't hear that, do you? We think it's automatic, and we don't know, not for sure, but we can't bear the alternative, so we adopt the belief that entering God's kingdom is automatic. Jesus says it's not automatic. No one can see the kingdom of God. No one can even enter the kingdom of God unless, unless what? Unless they are born again. Now, Jesus uses deliberately the language of birth, which is violent and graphic, you think about what happens to us as babies before we're born and after we're born. Before we're born, we're safe in the womb. We are not breathing. Our lungs haven't inflated yet, they're deflated. We are not in an air environment. We are floating in a fluid-filled sac. What's coming into our mouth and nose is fluid, not air. Is there life outside the womb? We don't know and we don't know any different. And to move to the life we know now, because I can see you outside the womb, that's harder than you think. You have to be wrenched out of your fluid-filled sack, you have to be shoved out violently into the open air, and for the first time, you open your mouth, and air rushes in, your lungs expand, and then you breathe. Jesus says it's the same with entering God's kingdom, it's harder than you think. It's not automatic, a preborn baby doesn't automatically switch to breathing in air when it's still in the womb. That doesn't automatically happen. And neither is entering God's kingdom natural. We don't just naturally enter God's kingdom when we die. Death isn't the birth experience to come into heaven. Death is the end of life, it's not the beginning. And the reason is verse 19, where Jesus says, people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. The truth is, you and I, we are not naturally children of the light. No, says Jesus, to enter the kingdom of God, something supernaturally radical has to happen to you. The only way that you'll get in is to be born again, or literally born from above, birth the second time. We need to be born again. What is this? Jesus describes it in verse five as being born of water and the spirit, or in verse eight, being born of the spirit. He's describing the same thing using slightly different terms. What is it? Okay, is being born of water and the spirit, is that speaking about our physical birth when the birth waters break and then a spiritual rebirth? Well, that bit's right. But why tell people who've just been physically born that they need to be physically born? That's just redundant, right? So others have said maybe what he means when he says being born of water and the spirit, it refers to being baptized in water and then being baptized in the Holy Spirit by speaking in tongues. And both of those have to happen for you to enter the kingdom of God. That is a worse interpretation. This is double legalism. That violates the crucial full stop at the end of John 3.16. If you hear someone being legalistic saying, unless you do this, uh, you won't go to heaven. Tell them to meditate on the meaning of the full stop at the end of John chapter three, verse 16. It says a lot, that full stop. There's no adding to the gospel, you see. In the end, the best place to understand what Jesus refers to by being born of water in the spirit or being born of the spirit, being born again, is. Ezekiel chapter 36. This is the one place in the Bible where water and spirit are mentioned together to describe the same thing. There, God speaks of a time when he would sprinkle clean water on sinners and they would be clean. When he would cleanse us from all our impurities and from all our idols, giving us a new heart and a new spirit, removing from us our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh And he says, that will happen when I put my spirit in you and I move you to follow me from within. Being born of water in the spirit means to be washed, to be purified through a spiritual rebirth which God the Holy Spirit brings upon us. Now, if you're taking notes, you might want to also check out Titus three, verses four to seven. Jesus says, without this cleansing, the spirit brings, um, you've got no hope, but with it, you are a new person. Without it, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Entering God's kingdom is harder than you think. It's not automatic, nor is it natural, but you can get in, but it requires you being born again, being born of the spirit. Something radical has to happen from God in your life. Now, how? Nicodemus says, we can't enter a second time into our mother's womb. I mean, it's a fair point. I mean, how, how do you get born again? Jesus says, okay, you've, you've been speaking of earthly things. Now let me speak to you of heavenly things. In earthly terms, entering God's kingdom is harder than we think, but from a heavenly point of view, entering God's king- kingdom is easier than you think. Time now for an exercise. Up here is John chapter three, verse 16, Ding. Thank you. It's also in your leaflet, on your outline. I want everyone to take a pen, whether it mentally or physically, and underline what you think is the biggest word in that sentence. Look at it, think about it. What is the biggest word? Okay, now, I'm gonna ask people to call out their answers, but if you've done the Bible study on this, you're not allowed to call out, okay? Okay, so anyone who hasn't yet done the Bible study, you can call out, and you'll be giving yourself away, but that's all right, it is grace. All right, so what do you think is the biggest word? Gave. Gave, that's a whopping big word, thank you. Sorry? Whoever, yes, it's open to anyone. God, God. yes, He's wider than a universe or something, and deeper than a submarine or something. (laughs) Sorry, loved, believes. Believes. There's so many big words there, aren't there? Um, I mean, next slide. Thanks. You know, there's there's a lot there. You know, loved, world, world's a big word, gave whoever, perish, that's a big word, we don't want to mention, eternal, it's very long. For my money, the biggest words in that verse are the smallest ones. For, so, and in. They may be small words, but they are the biggest. I'm going to go through them. The first word is for, we jump over it, we just think it's not there, we treat it like it's just an inverted commas or the beginning of something. But it is there and it's a connecting word and it tells us the reason verse 16 exists is to explain the statement before it of how we can be born again. Jesus says no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man, So. Okay, he's, he speaks with authority because he's the son of man from heaven. But then he starts speaking about an obscure moment mentioned in the Old Testament involving a snake. It doesn't seem particularly heavenly, but according to Jesus, he is. He's now speaking of heavenly things. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life, he's likening himself to a snake. Now we squirm because immediately we think of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. That's the wrong snake. <laughs> Jesus is referring to a bronze snake that Moses made in the book of Numbers. The Israelites had been wandering in the desert, they have been grumbling, catastrophizing everything, Forgetting that God had already showed his commitment and power to them, he saved them from Egypt with outstretched arm, a mighty hand, miracles, he provides manna in the wilderness, he provides quail to eat, he provides them water from the rock, and now they are hungry and thirsty again. But instead of asking Moses to intercede, please please may you ask the Lord to provide for us as as he has done in the past, instead they grumble. And there's no thankfulness, there's no regard for the Lord, there's no trust in him, there's just selfishness. And in punishment, we read in verse six, the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses now prays for the people. And then the Lord says to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on the pole and then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. It was as simple as that. All you had to do was to look at this unlikely and bizarre provision from God. Believe what God said about it was true and you were saved, you lived, and you did. It was totally effective, it made no distinction between those who were deserving and those who weren't. All it took was belief in what God said about that unlikely figure raised up on high. Jesus said just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now on one level the point is very clear. The cross is God's unlikely way for us to be saved. And we need to know that we're perishing and we need to look to Jesus raised up on the cross believing that if we do, we will be saved. We need to take that step of faith. You can't be saved without it, as Jesus says in John 3.16. It's those who believe who will not perish but have eternal life. Whose is that? Thank you for that. Encouraging tune. Okay. Sorry, Dave. So it seems really clear, but on another level, it's confusing. Why the snake? Why doesn't God tell Moses to make an image of something a bit nicer? Why must they look at a snake? We'll get to it. And also, what does this story of the snake in the wilderness say about what God is like and his motivation towards us? Is God only wrath and anger because of our sin? Jesus explains what made God provide these ways to be saved was not his anger, but his deep, deep love. He says, for God so loved the world. He explains, you see, the snake thing. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And now we get to the second big word, so. How can you grasp the size of God's love for you? David, honestly take it outside because it's not worth it. Good, just, right. How can you grasp the size of God's love for you? We can only get a sense of it when we look at how much God loves his son. There are three moments in the Gospels where God the Father blurts out from heaven to the world what he thinks about his son each time he is bursting with pride. At the start of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus was baptized, he's coming up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven opens, and the Spirit of God descends on him, and God the Father flings open the trapdoor of heaven, and he audibly shouts out, and people can hear these words. He says, this is my son, whom I love, and with him I I am well pleased. The Father's heart full to bursting with love, and delight, and pride in his Son, So much, so he yells out from heaven so that the world will know. You know, in the Bible, this is rare. He's only spoken once, one other occasion like this, audibly with all the people hearing. It was when the Israelites were at Mount Sinai and they heard God speaking his 10 commandments. God doesn't speak like this often. And then it happens again at the baptism. And then again in Matthew chapter 17. Next, where Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. Thanks. Next slide. His face is shining like the sun. His clothes are white as light. And then, when Peter sees Moses and Elijah also there and talking with Jesus, you know, Peter suffers a bad case of foot in mouth. He, he, he suggests, well, the situation could be improved by m- making three shelters for, for you know, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He doesn't know what he's saying. But he's sort of spoken as if Jesus is first among equals. And then the father corrects that. He speaks audibly from heaven. This is my son, whom I love. And with him, with him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. The father's heart again bursting with pride and delight about his son. It happens a third time in John chapter 12. Jesus knows the time has come for him to go to the cross. He prays that the Father would glorify his name, to which the Father then blurts out from heaven, I have glorified it, I'll glorify it again. And listening, we can sense the Father's pride in his son, who prays such a prayer at that moment, knowing he's going to die. You see, the Father so loves his son, he'd give him anything, anything, Except, of course, the time that he didn't. On the night he was arrested, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane pouring out his heart to his Father. I think in the most ardent, honest, selfless prayer ever prayed. He'd been going to Jerusalem, he'd been telling his disciples what would happen when he got there, he, he knew he was gonna suffer dying on the third day rise, but now, with that moment of crucifixion now only hours away, knowing what he's about to face, Jesus looks at it, he doesn't wanna go through with it. Why not, we think, you know, if you or I had to get crucified to save the world, wouldn't we do it? Well, Jesus knew what it would take to turn away God's anger from the world. It meant that he would have to drink the cup of God's wrath himself. And when he thought about it, so terrible was that prospect that he prayed the most honest prayer ever prayed, I think. And he begged his father to find another way, if possible, that the cup would be taken from him. And now given the father's love for his son, I mean they've been together since eternity, they've made the world together. Given how much the father loves the son, and they were like this, and hearing his son ask this, once, twice, three times, pouring him, himself out and three times adding the words, yet not what I will, but what you will. I think, I think that's the most selfless prayer ever prayed, by the way, here's, here's what I really want, but what I want even more than that is for what you want to happen. Well, I guess if the father had been proud of his son before, his heart would have been exploding with love now, which would have only increased his desire to grant what his son asked for. And now we begin to see that so much did God love the world that instead of saying yes to his son at his son's most dire moment, he stayed silent. You can hear the story of the snakes sent to punish the Israelites and we can hear of the judgment on the cross and think what sort of God is motivated by anger and judgment? And if you ask that question, you've got God completely wrong. Anger wasn't the father's motivation in offering a different way out. It was love. For a world that hated him, And when we see the love the Father has for the Son, we begin to get a measure of his love for us. See, Jesus explains, for God, he so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life to which the right response is to take the cross seriously, which brings us to the third big word, in. We've already heard Jesus highlighting the importance of belief in verse 15. Everyone who believes may have eternal life. To which we want to say, excellent, all people have to do is to hear about the good news, to hear about the cross, and they'll be saved. No, because there's a world of difference between believing information about the Son and believing in the Son. There's only a three letter difference there but it's a world apart. When you believe in the Son, you're looking to him not just as a fact, an interesting thing that God did in history, but you're believing that he is your one and only hope, that he is everything you need sent from God to save you and without him, you are going to perish Absolutely, certainly. But with him, you're fully saved because he's your savior through and through. That's what belief in the son means. That's what Jesus goes on to say in verse 17. He says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He's the savior for all the world, you see. Excellent, we think. He's the savior for everyone, those who believe in him, those who don't believe in him, no. You go back to the Israelites in the desert. I want you to imagine yourself one of them. You've been bitten by a death adder. The venom is pumping through your body. You're feverish. Your blood is beginning to leak out of your pores of your skin. You are totally unable to save yourself. Fever's taking hold and your your mind's going a bit crazy. And then you're told, good news. God told Moses to make a bronze serpent on a pole. It's just over there. You can see it's in the middle of the camp. Look at it, believe, and you'll be saved. Every Israelite had heard about the snake. And yet there were some who thought, this is ridiculous. How can looking on a snake on a pole reverse the effects of the toxins in my body? And today, people can think, how can believing in a man who was crucified 2,000 years ago somehow change my eternal status with God? That's ridiculous. Everyone heard about the snake, but it was those who doubted who perished. Hearing about the snake wasn't enough, they had to believe in it. And so, too, with the cross, hearing about the Son of Man lifted up, and you've all heard it, it's not enough. You have to each look to Jesus and believe in him. No one else can do it for you, you have to do it. And we can't get away from this. That little word in describes the difference between those who perish and those who have eternal life. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, says Jesus. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So you see where this is going? We need to become reborn, which Jesus has said is harder and easier than we might think. It's harder, it's not automatic, entering God's kingdom, and it's not natural. It's simply not true that everyone automatically goes to heaven when we die. And if we don't believe it, look again at John 3.16, and ask yourself, what is the default condition for people in that verse? The default condition is that we will perish. It's not automatic that we're going to heaven. Now to enter God's kingdom, it's harder than you think. We need to be born again, how? Jesus says it's easier than you may think. All you need to do is look to Jesus, lifted up for you, and believe in him. And so the question I want each of us to ask ourselves is, have I? Have I done that? Have you? Now, if you haven't, I want to finish with one final thought and this is really the key, I think, to the whole passage. That Jesus is the snake. You see, why did God tell Moses to make a snake and not something else? What was it about that? That was special in its symbolism. Well, what was the snake to the Israelites? In the story of Numbers, the snakes were God's agent of judgment on the Israelites, sent by God to punish them. So, in telling the Israelites to look to a bronze snake on a pole and live, God was saying to the Israelites, Look to this agent of judgment lifted up for you. Now, why would God? ask them to believe in their agent of judgment to save them. That doesn't make sense, does it? Well, it doesn't make sense until we come to Jesus, the Son of Man, who is lifted up to die for us. Let me explain. Jesus, when he speaks of himself being lifted up, he's very specific about what term he uses to describe himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. Now, why? Well, it's because of who the Son of Man is. Who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is God's ultimate agent of judgment. He's the one who will be judging people on judgment day. Not the Father, but Jesus, the Son of Man. Precisely because he has that role as the Son of Man. You remember Matthew 25. Jesus said, The son of man will come in his glory and all his powerful angels and he will sit on his throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. This is judgment day. And he will separate people one from another as a a shepherd separates sheep from goats and those on his right, he'll say, come and receive your inheritance prepared since the creation of the world. Come and take your place in the kingdom of the father and on his left he'll say depart from me you accursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels who does this it's the son of man in other words he's like a snake he's the agent of judgment sent from god to judge us and yet verse 14 jesus says just as moses Lifted up that snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. Think about it. Knowing that the one lifted up for you is your judge, and he was lifted up to die for you, that gives you complete assurance. Because think of the alternative, right? Suppose for a moment that Jesus died on the cross as our saviour, he was our saviour, but the end times judge was someone else, not Jesus Well, you front up to the judge. How do you know that having a saviour who's Jesus is enough? What's not to say that you're going to stand before your judge and the judge will have a different opinion and say, there's more needed? That is why Jesus, being the snake, is good news. Our agent of judgment, he was lifted up to become our saviour. Our judge, the one who will judge us, he has become our saviour so when we stand in front of our judge, it's not someone else. It's the one who's taken the judgment away. The son of man who was lifted up. Who bled and died to turn God's wrath away from you and it fell on him. He took it all and he bore it until it was gone. Now why would God do that? Because he so loved You, Ken. He so loved you. Paul. Daisy. Nick. Michael. He so loved you, CJ. He so loved you, Heather. He so loved you that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So you see what we've gotta do. You've gotta realize that without him you're perishing. It's harder than you think to enter God's kingdom. But it's easier than you think. You've gotta look to him raised up and take that step of believing in him. You've gotta be born again to enter the kingdom of God, have you? Look to the sun, it's easier than you think. I think Richard's going to lead us in a time of prayer. Thanks, Matt.